turn in God's word to Matthew chapter 3, picking up loved ones in this series that we began in December, Matthew chapter 3, today verses 1 through 10. We turn now to God's word. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord. Make his path straight. Now John wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt round his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. Then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region about the Jordan were going out to him, and they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not presume to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of God remains forever. Let's go back in time. 1517, you're in Germany, Wittenberg, and there's a display of newly acquired relics that is scheduled to be unveiled at the church. So everyone's kind of excited about this. But there's a professor who at that point wasn't as well known as he is now who said, I'm not sure this is a good idea. And in Latin, he wrote up 95 points intended for debate, called the 95 Theses. It was October 31st, 1517. This man, of course, was Martin Luther. Do you know, loved ones, what is the first of those 95 Theses? It is this, that when our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ said, repent, he intended that the entire life of the Christian is to be one of repentance. In Luther's day, this word repentance wasn't translated like we just rightly confessed it in the Westminster Catechism. Do you know what they called it in that day? It was called penance, meaning a work to be performed to merit grace. Luther came along and said, well, the New Testament understanding and the translation of the word is not penance, it's repentance. But what is repentance? That was important for Luther. It's important for us today. That's the theme of John the Baptist's ministry. The very same thing John says in Matthew 3, Jesus will say in Matthew 4. Repent, why? For the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Loved ones, Luther was right. Repentance is not only when you're converted to Christ, but every day, 
of the Christian's life. Repentance is a grace of God's Spirit. It's not a work that we meritoriously perform. A grace of God's Spirit where the sinner is inwardly humbled and visibly changed. That's so important. It's God's kindness that leads us to repentance. First, we want to see what this means in terms of John the Baptist's arrival. At this point in the Gospel of Matthew, it's important to remember where we've been. The first two chapters, do you remember, kids, all the Old Testament quotations over and over? Well, Matthew, the writer of the Gospel, who is the former tax collector, who is one of Jesus' 12 disciples, himself is writing primarily to Jewish Christians. And he knows the Old Testament very well. And he's telling us again, this time in Matthew 3, verse 3, we've got to go back to the Old Testament to understand this strange-looking guy named John. So where does Matthew take us in verse 3 of chapter 3? Back again to Isaiah. I'd encourage you in the new year as you have a new, fresh start, hopefully, in reading the Bible, to, to have a plan to read through the Bible in some way, however long or short it is. And as we're going through Matthew, an idea would be read through Matthew and read through Isaiah with Matthew. Because over and over we see the connections here with Isaiah. Isaiah was living around 700 years before the coming of Christ. He was called as a prophet to the southern kingdom of Judah. And God's people were unrepentant. The sanctions of the covenant at Sinai with Moses in Exodus 19, 20, 21 are about to be poured out. Judgment. Isaiah 1 to 39 may be some of the darkest periods in the history of Israel. We read, of course, in history that the Assyrians came and demolished much of Israel in 722 B.C. In many ways, there's the covenant sanctions at Sinai being played out. Darkness is everywhere. But in that context... When the covenant of God seems to have been forgotten, when all hope seems to be gone, when everyone is in horrible despair, a voice cries in the wilderness. Now, if you're living in Isaiah's day, you're not told who this voice is. You have to wait over 700 years to know who the voice is. John the Baptist comes saying, I'm here to prepare the way of the Lord. John is the voice prophesied in Isaiah 40. And in Matthew 3, John is just launched seemingly out of nowhere, right? We haven't heard of John in Matthew 1 and 2. But if you read Luke 1, 2, and 3, you remember, maybe children, from Bible reading, that this guy was born to Zechariah and Elizabeth. Remember, his dad was mute for a while. That this guy was related then to Jesus that he probably knew Jesus growing up. Isn't that interesting? But from the end of Matthew 2 until Matthew 3, about 30 years go by. And in Luke, we are told exactly the time in which John begins his ministry. There are, in Luke 3, a rogue gallery of villains, like Duncan says, that are ruling the world when John begins his public ministry. 
Tiberius was one of the worst of them, the Caesar. He was treacherous and cruel, reminding us that in all ages, moral degeneration and political chaos go hand in hand in societies. The governor was Pilate. Closer to home, all those Herod relatives that we looked at a few weeks ago. And here it is, 400 years after the last old covenant prophet, Malachi, we have the final Old Testament prophet. That's who John is. 400 years ago, think of that in terms of our culture. John Bunyan hadn't been born yet. Neither had Bach. That's the period of time between Malachi, who said a messenger will come, and John, who says, I'm that messenger. Where is John located? In today's world, it would be like in the badlands of North and South Dakota, way out there, in a place that very few people would live. He's in the wilderness. It's uninhabitable. And yet, out there, dressed in all sorts of strange clothing. Do you see what it says? Clothing made of camel's hair. A leather belt. This guy had nothing outwardly that would attract someone to him. And yet he had God's word come to him. And people thronged to him. He's nowhere near the capital. Nowhere near the city. Nowhere near the temple. He's out there on an early vegetarian diet. Locusts and wild honey. Interestingly, the locust part of it, that was part of what Israel in numbers was told they could eat. And the wilderness would identify John with the wilderness wanderings of Israel themselves. And what he wore would identify him with who, kids? Elijah. He is the promised Elijah to come. Not Elijah reincarnate, but he's the fulfillment of what Malachi said would happen. Do you know, children, that in the days of Zechariah, there would be people that would dress up like prophets to pretend they're prophets, but they weren't? (laughs) Well, this guy's the real deal. He comes and he says, do you remember what Isaiah said a long time ago about rough places being made smooth and valleys being lifted up? Well, that's happening. That's an interesting prophecy from Isaiah, isn't it? Because in that day, Isaiah's day, kings would travel around their domain and they'd visit different cities and literally they would fill in potholes on the road or other things to make their travel less bumpy. (laughs) That literally would happen. So Isaiah takes what in that day was a custom, preparing the way for the king, And by the Holy Spirit of God, he says, this is a prophecy of the coming king. Isn't that beautiful? It's a prophecy that nothing will stand in the way of the Lord's Messiah. Mountains will be laid low. Valleys will be lifted up. All the earth will see the salvation of our God. And John says, I'm preparing the way. The final Old Testament prophet, John, who can see, unlike the other Old Testament prophets, he can see the coming of Jesus very soon. Jesus would come six months after this. And the message of making these rough places plain is a message of what? Repentance. 
it's not about a physical relocation to Jerusalem. It's about a spiritual heart change. We see that secondly in John's announcement. John says, repent for the kingdom of what, kids? The kingdom of heaven is at hand. If you read Matthew and Mark, they'll use the phrase the kingdom of God. It means the same thing. And it's talking about the rule and the reign of God. God is a king. He has a kingdom. The Old Testament says over and over, he sits on his throne. So in one sense, the kingdom of God is the entire creation that he made. He rules over all of it. But this is talking about a different sense of the kingdom of God, isn't it? It's talking about a Messiah. And it's referring to an anticipation that the people of Israel had throughout the Old Testament. That there would be a visitation of God where justice would be established. Opposition would be crushed. A judgment would come. The whole world would be renewed. The Old Testament prophets anticipated this. They saw all of this event as one event. As we read in the New Testament, we see it's two events, isn't it? It's the first coming of Christ, but it's also the second coming. So it's the already and the not yet. Meaning, Jesus comes the first time. The kingdom of heaven is the kingdom of grace. It's the covenant of grace that God promised in Genesis 3. It's the Messiah who would crush the head of the serpent. And Jesus comes the first time to cast out demons, to heal the sick, to say someone from another world has come to fix what is broken in this fallen world. The last days have arrived, and yet the consummation hasn't yet come. Isn't that interesting? So we understand much more clearly than those in the Old Testament that the first coming of Jesus is in humility, to suffer, to die for his people, to heal the sick as a foretaste, as a preview, like a preview of a movie, of what is yet to come, pointing to the final coming of Christ, but we're living in between. We're between the first and second comings. John's announcing this in a way that they fully couldn't understand. We can't even fully understand it, can we, loved ones? Even though we have the full, the full New Testament. And we see that thirdly with the interactions he has. So the announcement is the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Christ, the Messiah, is coming. Christ, who himself, after he was raised from the dead, ascends into heaven. He is king of kings and lord of lords. He's ruling all things. That's happened. He's coming again. But how did people interact? Third. Well, we find that they came to John for a purpose. Do you see why they came, kids? They came to be baptized by John. Now, there's a lot of different views on what John the Baptist's baptism was, but we do know for sure what it was not. This is not the same as the Trinitarian baptism that you've been baptized with after the resurrection of Jesus in Matthew 28. You're baptized in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, right? John is kind of a hinge. In the Old Testament, they had purifications and cleansings that were called baptisms. 
and someone who is a Gentile may convert to become a Jewish believer, and they would have one of these baptisms, and a lot of them would baptize themselves. But here comes John. He's baptizing them. They're not baptizing themselves. He's telling not only Gentiles, but who else? The Jewish people of God that they need this baptism. And that infuriates the 5%, that's all they were, of those who are Pharisees and Sadducees. You see how they come out to John? They show up. The Pharisees, they were the religious party that meant the separated ones. So they saw themselves kind of as a cut above the rest. They loved the minutia of the law. And they loved to add to the law. And they loved to look down on people that didn't think the way they thought about what they added to the law. But what did they neglect? Love for God and love for each other. It's easy for us to see the Pharisee in someone else, isn't it? Much harder to see the Pharisee in my heart. We'll see that in a little bit. The Sadducees, they are the high priests. Most likely their name comes from Zadok, the high priest in the time of David. The Pharisees and Sadducees, this is what you need to know that is really important here, hated each other. This is like those on the far left and the far right lobbing stuff back and forth, savagely attacking on Twitter and on Instagram and on Facebook and in person and everywhere, just brutally going at it. But do you know what else they hated more than each other? Christianity. Christ. And here, their mutual hatred of Christ draws them together. John says, okay, you guys are coming for baptism? You guys? What does he call them, kids? Don't take this at home and use this on your siblings, by the way. (laughs) This is not prescription. He calls them a brood of vipers. You are serpents from serpents. This is the worst insult that you can imagine in that day. Today you might think, well, I actually like garter snakes. Maybe you have a snake at home. Maybe you like to feed it, kids. But in this day, this would be reminding them of Genesis 3, wouldn't it? Satan, the serpent, who himself, God said, I will put enmity between you and the woman. Remember the judgment of God that came on the serpent? So by saying this, John is saying, you are of your father the devil, which is what Jesus said to some other Pharisees in John 8. You belong to him. You want to do his desires. You're shrewd and deceptive and dangerous. And John says, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Do you see that? What's he saying there? D.A. Carson, I think, is right. This is sarcastic. He's saying, you think you can come, receive this baptism without repentance? You guys don't realize God can take these stones right over here by the river and raise them up to be children of Abraham. Interesting phrase, isn't it? 
What's he saying there? He's telling them, you can't avoid God's judgment because of your ancestry. You can't say, well, my genealogy says I belong to Abraham, and that makes me good. I've got fire insurance. I'm fine. Isn't that interesting in light of the genealogy of Jesus that we just saw? Genealogies are important, but family connections and heritage doesn't save us. Children, we must not make the mistake as kids or adults of saying, well, I was baptized, I profess my faith, I joined the church, my parents believe, and so that means I can just live however I want. The Bible doesn't say that. God calls upon each of us to repent and believe in Jesus and be saved. Now, the other extreme is also to be avoided. God's promises, children, are for you and your parents and all who are far off. You kids are growing up as members of the covenant of grace with amazing blessings to grow up in a Christian home. And God says to you, don't harden your hearts. Cry out to Jesus. Remember God's promises to you in your baptism. Trust in Christ and be saved. That's just an important application, I think, for us to make here. This is urgent. Look at Matthew 3.10. John is saying, don't say, well, I'm going to put this off. Sometimes you'll hear that. People say, well, I'm not sure about Jesus. I'm just going to kind of delay things. John says to the Pharisees, to the Sadducees, the root is laid, uh, the axe is laid at the root of the tree. Meaning, trees that are not bearing fruit must not think that they can get away with it. The sinner must not think, well, I'm going to be okay. I don't need a savior. Don't bother me. The axe man is sizing up the tree, it says. Judgment day is coming for those trees that don't bear fruit. The wrath of God, you see what he says there? God's settled opposition in his holiness to everything that is evil. The day of judgment, that day will come. And we are called on now, fourthly, to repent. What's John's message? In some ways, it's a one-word sermon. Of course, it's more than that. Repentance. What does this phrase mean? That's where we started, isn't it? That's what we want to dig in on and kind of explore a little bit here in this final point. The kingdom of darkness rules the hearts of unbelievers. Sin is called the works of darkness. But we read in Colossians 1, Jesus has delivered us from what? The domain of darkness and transferred us from the kingdom of Satan, the kingdom of darkness, to what? The kingdom of Jesus, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of our sins. Entry into the kingdom of God is by means of the new birth. Unless a person is born again, John 3, he cannot see the kingdom of God. So when a sinner is converted, when the word is preached, and the sacraments administered, as today we will have the Lord's Supper, when church discipline is rightly done, that's where the kingdom of Jesus is manifest. 
the kingdom of Christ. There are no tanks or capital buildings or currency or weapons in this kingdom. This is a spiritual kingdom. And loved ones, we don't extend it. God does. The Bible says God builds his church. Yes, God uses the means of preaching, of praying, of evangelism, of translating the Bible into other languages, of church planting and missions. We pray your kingdom come, your will be done. The kingdom of God is found when sinners are converted and sanctified and built up and bearing fruit. So we don't visibly see the kingdom, but we see the effects of the kingdom, don't we? Loved ones, as we begin a new year in 2022, where are you with the Lord Jesus Christ? Members of Emmaus here and online, visitors here and online. One man says this, in any congregation at any time, at any point in history, there are generally speaking four categories of people listening. First, there are those who are weary. Maybe that's you right now. You're exhausted. You're sick of your sin. And you need the gospel to comfort you. There are also those who are wayward, living a duplicitous life, needing to be humbled and convicted by the law of God. There are those who are lazy, who need to be lovingly admonished with the law and then encouraged with the gospel. There are those who are lost, who don't trust in Christ. Among those who are lost, maybe you're here today, maybe you're listening online, Some of you might just be brand new to Christianity, and you might say, I want to learn a little bit more about this. Others of you who are not trusting in Christ might feel like you've been dragged here, like you're forced to be here, or you're forced to listen to this, or someone said, I heard a sermon, and I think you should hear it. Maybe that's you. Others of you who are not in Christ may be kind of outwardly, intellectually impressed with the Bible, but you've never been humbled. Others of you maybe have been outwardly humbled but never repented of your sin. Never really truly repented, which we're going to look at here. And then there are those of you who today are here, you believe in Christ, and you're experiencing by God's grace the full assurance of salvation. And then there may be some of you here who are struggling with assurance. You're doubting. Do I believe? Am I a child of God? And then there may be others of you who have carelessly fallen into old patterns of sin and unrepentance. I bring this up because all of our hearts, all of our situations are spread across these and other categories today. And yet to all of us, wherever we are, here's the message John has for us. Repent. 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 This is the message that Jesus gives in the letters to the churches in Revelation. It's the message that Christ came to atone for sin. He has provided forgiveness of sins and righteousness. It is all in him. Repentance is the recognition of our need for forgiveness. 
There's something important theologically here to understand. Let me ask this question. Do we forsake sin in order to come to Christ? Think about that for a second. Do you forsake sin and then come to Jesus? This has been a debate for hundreds of years within Reformed churches. And Sinclair Ferguson says, I think very rightly, no, we do not forsake sin in order to come to Christ. That would be to make repentance in a way, independence into a meritorious work. What conditions were met in us for God to send Jesus to die for us? What do you think? Ferguson, again, rightly says, none. We don't have Christ offered to us on the grounds that we've repented. We offer Christ today to everyone, including those who are dead in their sins and trespasses. And you don't have to find money in your pocket to pay. Don't make Isaiah roll over in his grave. Come, you who have no money. Come, buy and eat and enjoy the free offer of the gospel. You don't repent in order to be forgiven. You repent because you believe in Christ. Because by grace through faith, you're united to Jesus. Don't reverse the order. We don't change our lives and clean ourselves up to come to Christ. Remember Jesus? He says to Zacchaeus, I'm coming to your house, Zacchaeus, no matter what kind of mess it's in. There might be pizza boxes piled in the front door that I can't even enter through those boxes. There might be all manner of things thrown around the house. But, Zacchaeus, I will come and transform your heart. I will come, Jesus says, and clean up that mess and make you more like me. What does biblical repentance look like? The fathers of the faith have helped us so much here. Thomas Watson, first sight of sin. We take our sin seriously before God. We all say, Christians, if you're a non-Christian here today, Christians are sinners. We need you to know that. As Christians, we say, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Lincoln Duncan says this. Have you ever been in a situation where you are so concentrated on the sins of another person or the wounds that they've given you or a fear of your own sins being discovered that you haven't reckoned with the gravity of your own sin before God? Has that ever happened to you? I, I think for all Christians, we would say, yeah, there are a lot of times where I'm so focused on that speck over there in my friend's eye or my Friend, uh, wife's eye or my fellow church member's eye, I'm just, I can't stop thinking about it. I got to be in the bond. I'm, oh, I can't sleep. I'm so mad about it. Have, has that ever happened to you? And then by the conviction of God's spirit, you realize my sin is way more serious than what I'm focused on over there. People can go along for weeks, sometimes months, Loved ones, sometimes years, luxuriating in self-justification. We'd rather be right than forgiven. We'd rather be vindicated 
then forgive. And it's the work of the Spirit to open us to that soul-shriveling condition that has captured us. And we'll actually then see our sin for what it is, an offense against a holy God. Repentance means I see my sin. Repentance means sorrow for sin. Loved ones, having tears and feeling sorry is not repentance. Regret, I can't believe I said that. I was so stupid. Regret is not repentance. Embarrassment, I am so embarrassed. I've embarrassed my spouse, my friends, my church members, my colleagues. Embarrassment, Sinclair Ferguson says, is not repentance. Self-pity is not repentance. Self-condemnation is not repentance. Apology is not repentance. It's not repentance to say, well, yeah, I did that 20 years ago. Those things might be the feeling or emotion of a moment. But 2 Corinthians 7 says we can say and feel all those things and be on a path that leads to spiritual death. That was Esau. He felt regret, and yet he didn't repent. That was Judas. He was sorry about what he did, but his sorrow led him to hell. Ferguson says this, why is this the case? Because in all those examples, it wasn't sorrow in relationship to the Lord. It was how stupid I feel. That's worldly sorrow. And it doesn't lead to forgiveness and pardon and change and transformation in Christ. What I need first and foremost in 2022 is forgiveness of sins, restored communion with the Lord. We need to say, I'm unworthy. Jesus, change me. Help me to love you. Help me to love each other. Confession me, uh, repentance means confession of sin. Thomas Watson says this, meaning, I confess my sin. Not that I confess someone else's sin. I confess. I say the same thing that God says about my sin. It means shame of sin. And along with that, hatred of sin. I hate the sin I did. I see that God hates it. And I want to love what God loves. God, help me. Be merciful to me. And it means turning from sin. Repentance means a change of mind and a change of behavior. As DeYoung says, I changed my mind about myself. I'm not fundamentally a good person. I'm not the center of my world. I changed my mind about God. I'm a sinner. He is trustworthy. His word is true. He forgives and saves. He delights to show mercy. None of us are predisposed to this. To saying, you know what? I was wrong. I repent. I was wrong about how I view myself and about how I view God. That's repentance. When that happens, that's amazing. It's seeing that the way I'm living is leading to destruction and death. God wants me to live a way that leads to life, 
It involves deep affections in the sense of godly sorrow, a change of the will, a change of direction, a 180 change. It's a gift. Dear Christian, it's not something you work up. It's a work of the Spirit in you that results in a change flowing from you. It's not natural to us. Our hearts are naturally stubborn. We would never in ourselves come up with the idea of repentance. Ever. We'd never do it apart from God's grace. Just as our righteousness is foreign to us, left to ourselves, we would excuse our sin, not repent. But by his grace, God grants repentance to his children. He loves you so much, he will give you his spirit in kindness to change your mind, to break that pattern. And along with repentance is what? Faith. They go together. What convinces you to repent? Not only the recognition of my sin, but the mercy of God. The gospel calls us to repent. We apprehend God's mercy to us. None of us repent perfectly. We have to repent of our repentance. We're not saved by our repentance. The ground of our salvation is the righteousness of Christ imputed to us. Through Christ, God removes the guilt of sin, covers the shame of sin, and renews us so you can make progress to be more like Jesus. It's like a trampoline. You sin, you go down, but then in repentance and by faith, you go upward and you see in your repentance and faith, Jesus. The devil can be tricky. He wants us to think about faith and repentance and think nothing of Christ. Then it's all introspective. The Bible says Jesus is a loving Savior and that by faith and by the Spirit you produce fruit. Jesus says, whoever believes in me will have streams of living water flow from within him. The fruit of the Spirit. So where previously we ran away from people when they messed up, by God's grace we have patience, the fruit of the Spirit, with them. Where previously we didn't want to serve anyone but ourselves, especially when they disappointed us, now we die to self and we're given grace to serve. Where previously we didn't think about others much, now we gently want to bear their burdens in Christ with them. Repentance is seen in reversing habits and trends of sin. In Luke's account, John the Baptist talks to tax collectors and soldiers about their callings and where they're tempted to sin. And I think for all of us, this is a good application. In our callings, where are we most tempted to sin? As a pastor, as a banker, as a stay-at-home mother, as a doctor, wherever your callings are, it's something for us to ask God to help us because naturally we're blind to see it, where we're tempted to sin in those particular callings. 
These things are not easy for us to see. But Jesus begins to change our life by throwing into reverse gear. Back it up. Patterns of sin that have dominated our past. So where are those difficult areas that we struggle with? You're tempted to fly off the handle with people. Anger and impatience. In those areas, God, work in me the grace of repentance. Areas of lust. God, work in me grace to repent. Areas of being self-righteous, judgmental, and opinionated. And lobbing bombs at people. God, work in me the grace to repent. Sins have names. And we repent of particular sins particularly, not to grovel in guilt, but to taste the joy of forgiveness in Jesus, to enjoy Christ and the gospel, to remember today Jesus loves you. We grow in Christ as we believe again that God loves you. At the deepest point of your shame and guilt and regret, Jesus loves you. As God pours his spirit into your hearts, that is how we are taken into deeper communion with God in Christ. That is what uproots sin in our lives. That we enjoy peace in our hearts as the spirit fills you again, Christian, afresh with Christ. And if you are not in Christ... Loved ones, Jesus will return again to judge the living and the dead. The king will come. The kingdom will be consummated. There will be a new heaven and a new earth. The sky will be rolled up like a scroll. On that day, it will be too late to enter the kingdom. Today is the day of salvation. If you are estranged from God today, here or online, Look to Jesus by faith. Turn from your sin in repentance. Flee your self-righteousness here. Flee your other sins there. Recognize who you are before a holy God. Trust in Christ. He will receive you. He will make you acceptable before a holy God. Washing you of your sins by his blood. And clothing you with his righteousness. Amen. Let's pray. Father, look upon us in your mercy. You are just. You are the justifier of the one who has faith in Christ. Lift our hearts to you. Increase our faith in Jesus. Grant us grace and assurance in Christ of the love that you have for your children. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.